Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 12th, 2017, and this is episode 2041 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today, guys. This is uh, going to be on boating safety. And I, I, know, I know that might not sound like the most exciting thing in the world, uh, but it is something that's important. And I think that sooner or later, even if you're not a boat owner, you're going to end up on a boat. And knowing something about boating safety may be something that actually saves a life or your life or prevents injury or death. And this show is called The Fill-in-the-Blank Podcast, right? It's not called the Get Your Ass Killed podcast. It's not called the, the Die Meaninglessly podcast. It's not called the Die When You Didn't Have To podcast. It's not called the Watch Someone Else Die podcast. It's called the Survival podcast. Uh, so uh, understanding how to be safe on the water is something I think is really important. This is great for me, too. I have recently become a once-again boat owner. And I think actually it's a good refresher for people that are like, you've owned a boat, you know everything, you've done everything, and you get out of it for a while. Because we atrophy our skills and our knowledge and our, our procedures and our protocols uh, over time. And then it, it's almost worse going back to something after a big break, if it can be dangerous, than it is to never have done it in the first place. Because then you know you don't know. And you can you usually are not so much overconfident. So I think this will be great for me and hopefully for you guys too. We'll have our special guest on in just a minute. His name is Jason uh, Raylick, and we will have him on to talk about things. He is a member of the United States Coast Guard, but he will be speaking as a TSP community member, not an official Coast Guard representative. Anyway, before we bring Jason on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey folks, when I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you could imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. All right, before we get into it, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, which is no longer... I don't know why I keep calling it. I guess after calling it that for like 800 episodes, it's, it's hard not to anymore. The year that was, the year that was the year 24. Here's what I have for you guys today. I have the Scylla Dynasty gets a new king from Southpaw Ben and North Africa secured from David Verne. Here we go. Contributed by Southpaw Ben, the Scylla Dynasty has been ruling the Korean Peninsula since 57 B.C. and will continue to rule it until 935 A.D. This will make it one of the longest continuous dynasties in history. King Yuri, I think it's pronounced U.D. based on my Japanese cousin-in-law's name, was given power upon his father's death, despite his father saying on his deathbed he'd rather uh, Tal Hei 
his daughter's uh, husband be made king. However, Tal Hay felt that would be improper, and Yuri was made king. Southpaw Ben says, It's amazing how much stock many ancient cultures put in having the king's son be made the next ruler. Monarchal succession is always the role of the dice, and we will see how Talhi's decision turns out in future segments. Um, I, I actually think like the biggest contrast here is you know halfway across the world in Rome, people are poisoning each other, stabbing each other, setting people up on battles that they expect them to lose, all for a shot at being the emperor. And if you become the emperor, you know, right, that like there's a whole shitload of other people that are going to be doing that, trying to get into your spot. And here, over in East Asia, we have a man being offered the kingship saying, I don't think that would be proper. And, and maybe that's why it's able to be a, a dynasty that lasts 935 years. Not saying it should or should, but there's a lesson there that generally people in power stay in power at the pleasure of the people that they have power over. As soon as people really decide that they've had enough, it tends to change. Just saying. Next up, let's take a look at North Africa secured. I have a feeling my prognostications for uh, Tacfarnius are about to come true. When Tacfarnius heard the Ninth Hispania had been shipped out of Africa, he began rallying a new army, saying the Romans were already pulling out of Africa and soon would leave completely. The Roman governor, Dolabella, uh, now only has the third Augusta and gathers every ally and mercenary he can. He splits his force into four columns and with the help of the cavalry and guides from an allied tribe, pursues Tacfarnius. They eventually track the rebels to a ruined fortress, and spend the night surrounding the camp. The camp is unfortified, and the rebels slept in the open. At dawn, the Romans charged and caught the rebels completely by surprise. The legionnaires fight like mad, but their centurions focused them on their one objective, preventing Tacfarnius from escaping again. He and his bodyguards are found and surrounded. Tacfarnius refuses to be captured, as he would be dragged through the streets of Rome in a parade. He charges at the legionnaires and is brought down by their javelins. Dolabella writes to Tiberius requesting triumphal decorations for finishing what three governors had tried to do with a smaller army. Tiberius doesn't award him because Sir Sejanus convinced him not to, not wanting the glory of his uncle Blasius diminished. So our friend Sejanus is continuing to be a problem. My take by David Verne, unlike the things that made the one of the things that made the legions so dominant was their skill in engineering. The legions would march up to 20 miles a day. Scouts traveled ahead of the main army and would pick a site for the night's camp. By the time the rest of the army arrived, the site was marked out with ropes and flags showing where each tent, kitchen, and wall would go up. Each legionary carried a pick and a shovel, and the army would set to work cutting sod and constructing wooden gatehouses. To build a fortified camp for the night, this allowed them to defeat besieging armies many times their size and sleep in relative safety every night, unlike the African rebels. So check this out. The Romans basically marched through desert and wilderness and shit like that. When they got where they were going for the day, they built a fort. Remember when you were a kid and you built forts? They built an actual freaking fort in the middle of nowhere. Pretty amazing. Um, when you hear things too like cutting sod... This is the North African desert. You realize that it wasn't so much desert back then. Maybe uh, maybe we screwed a lot of that up. Just saying. 
All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. All right, with that, I want to introduce our special guest today, Jason Raylick. He was born and raised in the southern part of Mississippi, enlisted in the Marine Corps at 17, made three deployments to Okinawa as well as the invasion of Iraq in 2003. He left the Corps in 2005 and went to work as a contractor at one of the First Army's mob centers. In 2006, he joined the Coast Guard as a mechanic. His first unit was a cutter, which operated primarily in the Gulf of Mexico, working counter-narcotics and migrant operations, then deploying back to the Persian Gulf to support the Navy. After that, Jason was assigned to a buoy tender covering most of the Gulf of Mexico, then finally being assigned to a small boat station working search and rescue and recreational boating safety. So he's got some experience on the water, guys, and he's here today to help us learn how to be safe with our experiences on the water. And with that, I want to say, hey, Jason, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Hey, I've got you on today to talk about boating safety. I think it's really important. In fact, I just bought a new boat, so this is a good refresher for me. Um, I think sometimes maybe it's worse when you used to be a boat owner and then you didn't own one for a few years. You get back in because you think you know what you don't remember. Uh, so I think it'll be good for me, and I think it'll be good for the audience. What I said during the intro was like almost everybody in this audience at one point or another is sooner or later going to get on a boat, own a boat, drive a boat, be part of what's going on in a boat, and knowing this stuff is good for everybody, even if they're not you know individually boat owners. But before we get into all that, can you tell us, like, How did you end up where you are right now professionally? Um, you know, take us back to like high school, your daydreaming, you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. How, how do you end up, you know, working for the U.S. Coast Guard? Yeah, so um, I was one of those kids that I actually got pretty decent grades in school and so forth and so on, but I hated school. So I knew that I didn't want to go to college, so I was thinking either law enforcement or military. So I looked into the Coast Guard, and apparently they weren't hiring at the time. So I wound up walking into a Marine Corps recruiting office on a Wednesday, and by Friday I was raising my right hand saying, I do solemnly swear, so forth and so on, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So I did the whole Marine Corps thing for four years, and I got out and got a job as a civilian and decided that I didn't like being a civilian. So I was like, I'll check this whole military thing back out and well, I'll look at the Coast Guard again. So apparently Coast Guard was hiring at the time. So I wound up about six months later joining the Coast Guard as a mechanic. And since then I've done pretty much everything that the Coast Guard has to offer. I've done the 
big boat thing down in the Gulf of Mexico chasing drug runners and migrants around, illegal migrants. I did the whole Aton thing, so I was on a boat that worked all the buoys you see marking all the channels. The Coast Guard during a time of war does fall under the Department of the Navy, so I did that. I went over to Bahrain for a year working under the Department of the Navy, and then I spent a decent chunk of time at a Coast Guard small boat station, which is where I got the majority of my experience interacting with the public and the whole boating safety aspect of things, um, both with the recreational and the commercial side of the house. And then that kind of pretty much leads up to where I'm at right now. Got you, man. So, you know, from a, a safety standpoint, I mean, one of the things you've probably done quite a bit of in, in the Coast Guard or been part of one way or another is, like, safety inspections, right? Like, I, I've had, not from the U.S. Coast Guard, but I've had uh, local officials, uh, you know, stop and check my boat for flotation devices and things like that. I guess before we should we, we get on, I, I did mention this in the intro, but we I'll, I'll say it again here for you. You're today here speaking as a member of the TSP community, uh, not officially representing the U.S. Coast Guard, and you're speaking from, but you are speaking from the viewpoint of, you know, from the federal level, because every state and every county and God knows what else has their own uh, regulations and, and things like that. So uh, that's on the boat operator to to know. And uh, so with that in mind, you know, when you, you know, board somebody's vessel or you're checking somebody's vessel uh, with a safety inspection, what are the types of things you're looking for? Why are those things important? And what are maybe some common problems or mistakes that you see people make uh, with, with, you know, safety uh, considerations on their boats? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the first point to bring up, and you just mentioned it, is the vessel operator. The vessel and operator being the key word there, not owner, operator. The vessel operator is the individual who is ultimately responsible for the vessel. So you're responsible for the people on board. You're responsible for making sure that all safety equipment is on board. And that is actually a common problem that I have run into is, you know, oh, well, I took my buddy's boat out. I didn't check to see if anything was there. Like, I just I borrowed my buddy's boat. I just assumed everything was there. So that's one of the first key things. Is if, if you're wanting to take a boat out, check to make sure everything is there. I've also run into a good bit, like, there's one in particular instance that stands out. Dude's like, I know I've got, I should have two life jackets on board which is one of the first things I'm going to ask for. I'm going to ask to see your life jackets. That's a key piece of equipment you should have on board. And dude can only produce one. He only had one. He's like, I know I should have two. Well, you should have two, but you don't. Because obviously you can't find it. So that's one of the first key things is, like, if you're going to take a boat out, go through the boat. Gotcha, gotcha. And on the on the operator thing that you mentioned there, let's dig in that a little bit. So I'm out, it's my boat, I'm on the boat, um, we're trolling for fish, 
and my buddy's driving. Does he then become the operator and become responsible for any citations the boat gets? Or in that instance, since I'm right there in the boat, am I still technically... I mean, how do you define that? That's a kind of a weird thing for me. I never really thought about it. I get what you're saying if I take my buddy's boat out, but does it? You know, every time somebody else gets behind the wheel, it becomes their responsibility? And then what does that mean if my kid's driving the boat uh, under my supervision? Yeah, that's kind of kind of really you're digging into situationally dependent stuff, and lots and lots of lawyers speak. Um, generally speaking, the guy that actually has his hand on the throttle and his hand on the steering wheel is going to be the operator. So, okay. to kind of put it a little more in perspective. Let's just say that there's alcohol on board. Okay. Obviously, the guy that has his hand on the steering wheel needs to be sober. If you own the boat and you're sitting there with a fishing pole in your hand and your buddy has his hand on a steering wheel, he's operating the boat, he's sober, you've got a beer in your other hand, okay, you're fine. Okay. The moment that you swap positions... And he picks up the fishing pole, and you put your hand on the steering wheel, well, you're now operating the boat. And it kind of, I guess it's kind of a gray area as far as, like, if something happened, who's ultimately responsible. I mean, you're really digging into something that you need to ask a lawyer for. Okay, got you. Um, let's talk about some other maybe common problems uh, with people uh, when you're inspecting their boat. And, and not so much, I mean, because, yeah, there's there's laws and regulations here. But, I mean, in the, the end of the day, uh, the reason these things are important is because they're, they're safety considerations. So what are some other things that maybe you commonly see missing or not taken care of or not done properly on, on a vessel that, and, 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 you know, what is the ramifications for the operator if they're not there, you know, other than a fine? Because uh, I think most people understand that, hey, like, if you don't have a life jacket, you can drown. But some of this other stuff, I guess, people don't really think about. Like, I mean, fire extinguishers is something that, that springs to mind. A, a fire on a boat is a friggin' problem. Yeah, and actually, fire extinguishers is a good one um, because most people think of, like, flooding being your worst enemy. But fires probably the second biggest one because especially if you're you know 50 miles off the coast well you can't exactly call a fire department and um you know a boat that's on fire you're not going to stay on it very long you're probably going to bail over the side so there's a couple of different levels with the safety equipment um some things are obviously considered to be more important than others. So there are certain items that you have on the boat or you're supposed to have on the boat, like a life jacket. If you do not have the proper number of life jackets, and this is something that I have run into, people don't have the proper number of life jackets, or they have children on the boat, and they do not have child-sized life jackets, you have three children, you should have three child-sized life jackets. You don't have that. It's what we call a terminable offense. You're getting terminated. You're getting escorted to the pier. 
we're going to take you home. If you don't have the registration on the boat, uh, I might issue you a warning. I might issue you a violation. But I'm not going to escort you to the pier just because you don't have a piece of paper. Life jackets, on the other hand, yeah, you're going to the pier. So there's, there's different levels when it comes to the safety equipment. Fire extinguishers is another big one. You're probably going to the pier. You don't have the right number of fire extinguishers and you don't have the right type of fire extinguishers on board. You're probably going to the pier. Gotcha. Um, you know, is there other things that, I mean, are really critical, um, you know, signaling, communications, things like that? Um, with your signaling and communication stuff, um, you are required to have a sound-producing device. Depending on where you're at, you could be required to have players. Players are required usually three miles offshore. Which is something else to think about is if you have, just say, a lake, but the lake is 30 miles across, and you're in the middle of the lake, you're more than three miles offshore. So it's something to think about. Um, if you are in the middle of that lake, you are required to have flares. So um, another common problem with the flares in particularly is expiration dates. Flares have expiration dates just like everything else in life nowadays, including your bottle of water, apparently. <laughs> water expires for some reason. But, you know, check your expiration dates. Most of your recreational guys, um, I'm... I'm not going to issue you a violation if you're a recreational boater and you have expired players on board. However, if you are a commercial vessel and you have expired players on board, I believe the minimum fine is $8,000, if I recall correctly. But there is a difference between your recreational and commercial. So it just kind of puts it in perspective the way the government looks at your safety equipment. Um, your sound producing device is another one. Some people, they don't have it or they don't have anything. It's simple. It's so simple. And it's frustrating for me when I get on board a boat and they don't have a sound producing device. A device that produces a sound, a whistle, it costs like $2 at West Marine, and West Marine is way overpriced. So just spending that $2 for a whistle is something, I mean, something to look at. Gotcha. Let me tell a quick story kind of that reinforces this. Um, many, many years ago, God, I guess almost 25 years ago now, I bought my first real boat, and it was a little 15-foot ski boat. I was out with a buddy cruising around on Lake Louisville. Um, it wasn't a fishing ski. It was a dedicated ski boat, so it had no trolling motor. I don't know that it would have mattered anyway under the circumstances. It's about an hour before dark, and we're about ready to head in. We're just kind of drifting around. Started up, and it dies. And I mean, everything dies. The whole electrical system just dies. There's no lights there's no motor. 
There's no engine. This is also the days before everybody's walking around with a cell phone, so I have no cell phone. Um, due to uh, new boater stupidity, I had already lost my anchor, so I couldn't even like you know, throw the anchor out, pull the boat to it, and keep doing that to get to shore. So we're drifting around in the middle of a fairly large lake. Lake Louisville's a 40,000-plus-acre lake. And uh, no, no horn, because the boat had a horn, but doesn't work because the electrical system doesn't work. No lights, nothing. And no kind of signaling device. We didn't have a flare gun or anything like that. We start waving to people as they're driving by. And you know what people do when you're on a boat and you wave at them? They wave back. They wave back. Hey, hey. They were like, no. We're like waving our hands and telling them to come over. They're like, yeah. They're, they're driving by partying. Nobody comes by. Um, it starts getting closer and closer to the dark. We're, I mean, we're a couple miles out from, you know, not shore, but from where, where my vehicle is and from, frankly, any ramp. You know, we're... We could drift to an island and sit there and wait or something, but we're stuck. And uh, no way to get in touch with anybody. So finally, as an act of desperation, I took my shirt off, and I took a knife, and I cut a rag out of my shirt. I tied it on the pole for the, the standing pole light for the boat, dipped it in the gas tank, and lit it on fire, and waved it like a torch. And this finally encouraged an older couple to kind of come close enough to hear us, And uh, when they finally did, they kind of circled us a bit, like maybe we were dangerous or something like that, and they kind of realized we're stuck. They come over, and we tell them, and they towed us in. Um, I, you know, I, I know that today it would be likely that I could have simply made a phone call and gotten some assistance, um, but that really drives home the need for signaling and sound-making devices, I think, in, in a real way, because we were in a position where we had nothing. And it's, you know, living a life of preparedness now, it's easy to laugh at people when they're totally unprepared. But, you know, this is when I was 21 years old and I had a boat because chicks like boats. And, and there's a lot of people in that position still. And I think a lot of times you don't, you don't appreciate why these things are required until you rely on them and they're not there. Um, and, you know, I, I'd like to believe if I had a bay boat and I was out on, like, a, a bay or something like that, Uh, I would have been a little more prepared, but, but I don't know that I would have. You know, the consequences of being stuck on Lake Louisville, unless you go overboard and drown, aren't that great. Um, but yet, it was a very inconvenient situation. It could have been much worse and could have lasted a lot longer. Oh, my God. I can go so many different directions from everything you just said. So, I guess to start with, I had an in particular case where we had a disabled boat in a lightning storm. I don't know anything about lightning, lightning antennas. Antennas tend to turn into lightning rods. Bad situation. So we need to go out and get these people, like, very quickly. And we come out of the ICW, the Intercoastal Waterway, and as soon as we do... This dude has a giant floodlight. As soon as we clear into the main river, he hits us with three shots of three hits from his spotlight, three flashes. International sign for distress, three. I immediately know where this dude is. I immediately know that's the dude that's in trouble that I need to go get. But he had a giant spotlight on board. Most people don't have that. 
So that's one thing with the whole signaling thing. Um, you know, the whole aspect of, you know, waving to people and they not paying, that's totally a thing. Yeah. Like, I've seen it a lot. So, you know, knowing certain things like your threes, um, three is in distress or just knowing your SOS, um, what is it? Uh, three long, three short, three long. Knowing that, being able to hit somebody with a flashlight or having an actual strobe light on board is totally a thing. The strobe light, most boats aren't required to have that, but it's still a good thing to have. Well, I, I can give you another example from the same lake. So I'm out with that same boat fixed and a friend one night, and now I've got my shit together, and uh, we're just hanging out, and it's, it's probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and we see a light blinking, and a guy's flashing SOS with a flashlight. My one buddy is not the brightest bulb in the tree. Uh, was like, it's dash, dot, dot, dash. I don't know what he was saying, but he was totally wrong. But he goes, it's SOS. I'm like, well, you got the SOS part right. So we go cruising over, and it's like this huge, beautiful yacht. And uh, they were stuck. We towed them into their slip. Uh, but without a light, as far as we were from them, we would have never rendered aid because we would have never known that they were under any sort of duress or any need of help. I mean, they were in a part of the lake we would have never generally went to. Um, and they were far enough out from us that you would have never heard them yelling, right? Maybe if they had a big air horn or something like that, you might have heard it. But light got our attention really, really quick in the dark. Um, it was actually a good thing, too. We made good friends with them, and every time we were on the lake, we'd stop by their slip and hang out on their like sick yacht that was like a million-dollar yacht. But uh, nope. so never stop, never fail to stop and help for, for many reasons. But, you know, sometimes good karma comes to those who stop and help. <laughs> exactly. And another thing, going back to what you just said, you know, being out in the middle of the lake and, you know, before the time of cell phones and whatnot, do you know how many places cell phones do not work? Lots. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I literally, I drove through Raleigh, North Carolina, the middle of the city. Like, the city of Raleigh, North Carolina, the capital of North Carolina. Do you know how much data I got trying to pull up Google Maps? None. In the middle of Raleigh, North Carolina. Imagine what happens when you get 20 miles off the coast. You get nothing. So, so many people that I've talked to, oh, well, I've got a cell phone. I'm got a bag of lead <laughs> like out here your cell phone is useless like out of all of the dudes that I was stationed with when I was in North Carolina me and one other dude had um, US Cellular US Cellular was the only carrier that got any reception where we were at Verizon, you might if you, you know, put your tinfoil hat on and stood on one leg and held one hand up in the air and, like, danced around in a circle. You might, if you had Verizon, be able to get something. 
But U.S. Cellular was pretty much it. So the fact that you have a cell phone is wonderful when you're in town, but, like, the fact that you're, you know, 20 miles off the coast, you're not getting a cell phone reception. And that can be the same thing in the middle of a lake surrounded by towns and cities because it's a big, empty space. And uh, having come out of the cell phone industry with some level, I can tell you that there's, there's, there's holes. Uh, yesterday I was fishing in the middle of a little town called Azle, Texas. Plenty of good cell phone signal. But I was down in a ravine where there's a creek. My wife called me four times and wanted to know why I didn't answer um, while I was away. And it was because, well, without even, you know, I didn't look. I didn't try to use my phone, so I didn't realize. But never got a call because my phone was not, you know, connected to the network. Just because I was, you know, down in a 20-foot deep ravine. Um, I mean, you, you it, it's, it's a good thing to have, but I don't think you can rely on them. So, like... That's a good kind of step off there. Like, what type of radio or gear should people have for that type of consideration? Including, and I know you're coming at this from like a Coast Guard level when we think about the ocean and all, but like lakes, I mean, you don't necessarily have to be in the ocean to not be able to get a cell phone signal. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of different things with this. It goes, it kind of goes back to the whole, you know, two is one, one is none type of concept, but you're looking at it from a little bit different aspect. From this perspective, like, I want redundancy, but I want redundancy in different types of redundancy. So I want a cell phone and a radio. Because I might be in an area where I get cell phone signal, but no radio signal. Or I might be in an area where I get no cell phone signal, but I got a radio signal. So there's kind of different aspects with your electronics. Another thing, and this is another thing that just absolutely kills me. Do you know how many boats I've boarded? This dude's on an $80,000 boat. And you can't spend an extra $250 on a PLB, a personal location beacon? It's 150 to $250. It works off of satellites. That you can go into any West Marine Bass Pro Shop, you can pick one up, 150 to 250 bucks. You hit the big red button on a PLB, and it triangulates your position in a number of different ways. Um, it it works off of satellites, it works off of radio towers. The Coast Guard has something you can Google this. It's called Rescue 21. It's a computer network that's tied in with radio towers. You hit the button on a PLB, and it pops up on the Coast Guard's Rescue 21 system. Tells them, hey, I'm in trouble, and I'm right here. The boats that the Coast Guard has, the helicopters that the Coast Guard has, they have a special radio on board that specifically zeroes in on the frequency that the PLBs transmit on. And it will say there is a PLB at 090. So go this way to find the PLB. So it's it's something that like I mean a cell phone or a radio, you might or might not get your perfect results from it, but it's something that's fairly reliable and nobody has them aside from the commercial guys that are required to by law 
And, and I mean, that's something that would be beneficial to someone, not just an ocean-going vessel. That's, the, but I, I guess my, I guess my question is: so if I'm in the middle of Lake Louisville or something like that, and I hit that big red panic button, I guess does, I mean, what what happens next? Because there might not be. I mean, does that go to the U.S. Coast Guard? Who? How, how does that actually work? And, and who does it notify? No, us? There, the the satellite. The satellite that picks up that signal does not care where you're at or what you're doing. Okay. The satellite that picks that signal up, all it cares about is the fact that somebody pissed, pushed the big red button. It's going to get a GPS location, and it's going to send it to basically an international distress service. That international distress service is going to say, okay, this is right here. Here is the local search and rescue. So if it's, you know, 10 miles south of Key West, Florida, they're going to say U.S. Coast Guard. And they're going to put that information to the U.S. Coast Guard and say, hey, we just picked this up. Go get these guys. So it goes from the international thing, and I don't completely understand it because I'm just a mechanic, but... You know, it goes from the international guys, it gets pinged over to the local search and rescue, and they respond from there. The one problem that you do have with the PLBs, and I know that they're used a good deal in Alaska because you've got guys that are out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I do remember a documentary, I think it was, talking about one guy who had a heart attack, and they used the PLB. But the problem was they were in a canyon. So the satellites couldn't get a good position because their signal was bouncing off of the canyon walls. So the satellites couldn't necessarily pin down their exact location. They did find the guy. A helo got to him, and they pulled him out and got him to a hospital. But... The fact that they were in a canyon did cause problems, which goes back to the whole concept of having multiple, your cell phone and your radio and your PLB, so forth and so on. Yeah, because I mean, what I'm thinking is, like, I noticed in your notes you're like, 911 sucks, but I'm also thinking, like, that, that red button seems to be like a major panic button, like, it's a serious thing. And if I'm drifting a, a, a quarter mile from a boat ramp and I just need some assistance to get in, if I can get a hold of 911 or if I can reach someone, you know, locally that I can say, hey, we're not we're not dying here or anything, uh, you know, I, I just need some assistance. It seems like having those options seems important, not just relying on any one of them. Yeah, and there's a couple of things tapping off of that. Uh, I did put in the notes that 911 sucks. Um, the reason that 911 sucks is because 911 is used to people calling and saying, hey, somebody broke into my house, or hey, I just witnessed a car accident. 911 dispatchers are not used to, hey, we're on a boat and we're sinking. They're not used to that. The Coast Guard has a very specific checklist for everything, for everything. So if you see a flare, there's a checklist for that. If you have somebody that has a heart attack on a boat, there's a checklist for that. And we go down those checklists. There is what we call an initial SAR checklist. 
you get a call, somebody's in trouble, you go down this checklist, and if it turns out to be a medical case, you also break out the medical checklist. So 911 doesn't have that. So nine times out of 10, when I get a phone call from a 911 dispatcher, the information that I get is, hey, there's somebody that like they're in trouble and here's a GPS location for them. Well, we're the Coast Guard. We operate off of Latin longs. We don't have GPS. So the information you gave me is next to useless. Like I, I have to actually Google a converter to convert your GPS location to a Latin long so I at least know where the person's at. On top of the fact you told me they're in like they're in trouble, well how? Like how many people are on board? If the boat sank and I get out there, how many people am I looking for? I don't know because you didn't ask that question. The nine one one operators, I'm not trying to bash them, but they don't know to ask certain questions, which is another key part going back to the whole cell phone thing is at least have your local Coast Guard numbers in your cell phone or having a radio on board so you can hail the Coast Guard directly because they know what questions to ask. Yeah, I, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. Um so let's talk about some of the other things that we've got here. Um, some additional safety gear that you recommend. Um, bilge pump. That's that's a huge one. Um, that's that saved my ass in numerous occasions fishing. Oh yeah, I have um, a friend of mine that watched his buddy drop his boat in the water, and he forgot to put his hole plug in when he dropped his boat in the water. So he had the pleasure of watching his buddy drive his boat as fast as he could in circles, trying to get all of the water to wash out the back of the boat because he forgot to put his whole oh, bilge pumps. You gotta love them. Two is one, one is none. Like have a hand pump, have an installed pump, have all kinds of pumps because, like, when you need them, you need them. Yeah, and it's amazing how much water a vessel can take on quickly. Um, I've I've seen people. I've never done this one myself, but you know, like smaller boats, when you pull them out of the 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 boat ramp onto a trailer, there's a little plug, and you pull that plug out, and then all the water that's below deck drains out of your boat. Well, if you're smart, you take that plug and you pull it out and you wait till the water stuff's coming out and you stick it right back in there. But a lot of people, I don't know, they think they like to make a line down the the, the, the boat ramp so they throw it in like a cup holder or something and hey, they go driving away with the with the boat with the water pouring out of it. I see that all the time. And I had a friend of mine one time, he forgot to put his little plug in and uh, just saying it was a good thing he had a bilge pump because uh, it, 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 it took a lot of water on really, really quick. Uh, and we were able to just basically reach down and stick the thing in it. But it's it's like it's little stupid things a lot of times to get people in serious trouble. Yeah, and that brings up another point. It, it has been my experience. Boats sink at two speeds. <laughs> Built fast. 
or really slow. One yeah. of the other, uh, you can get on YouTube and find videos of full size like commercial fishing boats that sank in two minutes. Wow. Two minutes gone under the water. Not mast everything. Just gone. They're gone. Bye. Have a nice day. Like two minutes. A full size, like eighty foot full size commercial fishing boat just gone in two minutes. Or they sink really, really, really slowly. So it's one of those things. It, it reminds me of another thing. One of the things that we stuck into one of our um, damage control kits. Um, we have kits on our various different boats, and depending on which boat you're on, depends on what kit you have on the boat. But one of the extra things that we stuck into our kit, Nerf footballs. You want to plug a hole? Stick a Nerf football in it. <laughs> it's a small hole. Do it. I'm serious. It works. No, it makes sense. Huh. And shove a Nerf football in it. it. It's totally, like, that's one of the things that we did stick into some of our kits was Nerf footballs because it's foam, it's waterproof, and if you have, you know, a two, three-inch hole, you can shove a football in it. Okay, that 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 actually makes a ton of sense, and that's that's a, again a simple solution. Go through some of the other stuff you have here. I get food and water. That's another thing I think with people like, you know, when we go backpacking, we I think most people think about taking more food and water than you're going to need for the planned trip. But I think that's something that probably a lot of people have suffered unnecessarily for. And then water is like one of those things. Well, I'm on the water. Well, it doesn't mean you can drink it. I mean. Um, and, and being out on a boat, especially like, uh, you know, you really get baked with the sun, so water becomes even more important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of situations that I've seen play out to where one thing to understand, too, to kind of backtrack a little bit, is the fact that just because you call the Coast Guard does not mean they're coming to get you. Okay. You break down? That sucks. Are you in distress? Oh, you're not in distress? You just you ran out of gas? Oh, that sucks. Nah, not necessarily coming to hit you. There's laws in place that say that the Coast Guard has to give commercial salvage, i.e. sea tow, towboat U.S., the opportunity to come get you. Because if we don't, then we're interfering with them. So, in order for the in order for the Coast Guard to come out, we have you have to be in some form of distress. So, just because you broke down doesn't mean somebody's coming to get you. Well, God knows how long you're going to be out there baking in the sun. So how much water do you have on board? How much food do you have on board? And not just the fact that can you eat? You got a three-year-old. Three-year-olds get hungry. So if you're going to be sitting out there for six hours, your three-year-old gets hungry, do you have something to feed your three-year-old? 
not just from a like save the three-year-old's life perspective, to keep them from screaming, to keep them from crying. Like literally, like they're gonna get hungry, they're gonna get thirsty. So how much food and water do you have on board is totally a thing. Another thing is medications. Um, I've gone out because a boat broke down and there was a diabetic on board and they didn't have any insulin. They needed an insulin shot. We went out for that because they didn't have an insulin shot on board. And kind of rolling into the same aspect, you know, clothing. Sun goes down. It starts cooling off. It might be, you know, it might cool off five degrees. It might cool off 20 degrees, depending on where you're at. So also, you know, food, water, <clears throat> medications, clothing, be prepared for getting stuck. You know, thinking about that type of stuff in advance is a thing. It prevents a lot of stuff. Yeah, um, some other stuff you mentioned, like a good toolkit, um, good knife, things like that. Yeah, so um, toolkits are another good thing. Um, you know, the knife kind of goes into, like, I've got a knife in my pocket all the time. All the time. There's a knife in my pocket. I have a flashlight in my other pocket. Like, my knife's in my right pocket, my flashlight's in my left pocket. Um, usually when I'm at work, if I'm not wearing a gun belt, I have a flashlight, I have a six inch crescent wrench, and I have a Leatherman on my belt. And part of that is because I'm a mechanic, so I walk through a boat and I fix things. So part of that, but that's still good things to have on you in a toolkit, because like, I mean... There are so many simple things that can go wrong on a boat. <clears throat> I had, we had to go out for somebody because they broke, they literally broke the key off in the ignition and couldn't start the boat. Yeah. Like, that, that, that was the problem. The key was broke off in the ignition. So the, there was nothing to grab a hold of to turn. But a pair of needle nose or a Leatherman, and pff, you're good. Flathead screwdriver. Flathead screwdriver jammed into it, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And you could have started the boat. But we literally had to go out for that. In fact, we had to divert from this whole other operation that we were working on to go deal with you broke the key off and the ignition, and you didn't have anything to shove in there. <laughs> So I mean I I I look I'm thinking of that one and going I bet you there's something on that boat I could have busted off busted smashed down flattened out one way or another I would have got that damn thing to turn um, but having the right tool for the right job is a hell of a lot better yeah and that that also brings up another point and frustrates me with a lot of boaters is I've heard you say so many times. When it comes to entrepreneurs, when you are in an entrepreneurial mindset, when an opportunity presents itself, you will see it. 
when you're not in that mindset, the opportunity will still present itself. You just won't see it. I've seen kind of the same thing with boating. Something happens. The key broke off in the ignition. Well, there's something that you could have used to shove in there and turn the thing, but you weren't in the mindset to look for it. You weren't in the mindset to look, do I have a flathead screwdriver I could shove in there? So that's a whole other aspect of this, is being in the mindset to, like, I have this problem, what's the solution? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I was kind of narking myself out, right, about being an idiot and ended up in the middle of the lake with no signaling gear and no oar and no, you know, anything. But in the end, uh, the reason someone came and helped us is we improvised. We, you know, we we made a torch. And that might not be the best solution, but it was the solution that we had. And I think that's like, in addition to all of these things that we're talking about that you should have on a boat, um, having the men mental uh, acuity to be able to figure out, well, what are my tools? What is available to me that will you know, deal with the situation because even if you're going to come out and help me, I don't want to sit there for four or six hours baking in the sun waiting on you if I don't have to. That's just, that's just idiotic. And then the other thing is if you have to come way out of your way to help me for something stupid like that, and then while you're helping me, because you'll totally priority some, prioritize somebody that's like an actual danger over me, but let's say, okay, there wasn't anybody, so you guys come out to help me. Now... You know, completely in the opposite direction, you're much further away. Somebody's in a serious life-threatening situation, and, and my stupidity has made their rescue more difficult. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the in particular small boat station that I was at, we were fairly slow, so we might get a couple of cases in six months. And then, like, over the course of a weekend, we would get an onslaught. But there's a lot of Coast Guard stations that they have three or four search and rescue cases running at the same time. Like, literally, they, they've got three or four cases at the same time, and there's only so many boats. There's not enough boats to go around. So these boat crews are literally running from one search and rescue case to the next one. Like, they have to prioritize. So, you know, as much as you can mitigate and help yourself, you, uh, how do you even put it? You, you relieve yourself of the necessity of relying on the government to come save you. Absolutely. So let's talk about a few other things here that I see. Um, engine failure, and we'll include running out of fuel with that and you know, kind of speak to that. I think one of the things with engine failure is cars are like, people talk about cars not being built like they used to, but cars are incredibly reliable today. And there's an expectation that whenever you turn the key, the car is going to start. And, and let's face it, when it doesn't, you're usually somewhere that's, you know, okay to be. Um <clears throat> Boats, you know, if it doesn't start at the dock, that's one thing. But once you leave dock and that boat doesn't start, you got a problem. And then fuel's another issue. And I've, 
I think the most, the largest number of people I've towed in, they weren't in engine failure. They were out of gas. Yep. <laughs> That's totally a thing. So, like, uh, all right, so you're going to go out fishing, right? So what do you do? You drop your boat in the water. You start the engine. Engine starts. Cool. So you go out to where you're going to fish, and then you turn the engine off, and you turn the trolling motor on. And then you get done fishing for the day, and you go to start the engine again. Engine doesn't start. Um, yeah, and engine doesn't start, and the trolling motor is only going to go so far, and we're 20 miles from where we came from. Mm, yep, you're not getting home. Just saying. Just saying. You're not getting home. So what are you going to do? You know, and the boat also... Your car, you get in your car nine, nine people out of ten, 99 people out of 100. They get in their car every single day. And you start your car, you drive to work, you park your car, you get off of work, you get in your car, you start your car, you drive home. Your boat, it's the weekend, we're going fishing. So once a weekend you drop your boat in the water. So you start your boat once a week. Not quite the same. So there's a lot of issues that I've seen from people just because you don't use your boat like you use your car. A lot of people, well, it started when I left the dock. <laughs> <laughs> you laugh and I love it because a saying that I love to use is you know it, it works until it doesn't it yeah. works until it doesn't yeah. you know so okay yeah you started the boat at the dock now you're 20 miles from where you came from and you try to start the boat and it doesn't work and oh by the way you're not in distress so the coast guard's not coming to get you because you ran out of gas that doesn't mean you're in distress so it's kind of just come on you've, you've said that a couple times but i want to i want to hold you there so when does a person become in distress so do they sit there until they're starving to death or that you know i mean when does a person that's in a stranded vessel meet the definition of in distress There's a word that we like to use called articulation. There's certain situations where, and I'm trying to think of a good example, um, but if, if somebody is not necessarily in distress, I have to articulate why I'm going to go get them. Um... So, an in particular situation might be the fact that the weather conditions are deteriorating. They've been on board for six hours. They have no food or water. 
nobody's picked them up. They're going to continue to be on the boat. I can articulate the fact that this is becoming a hazardous situation for them. But you're kind of tapping into a, a gray area with that. And it's, it's kind of something that we run into on a regular basis. Um, don't quote me numbers off the top of my head. I think a sea tow or a towboat membership is like 150, 200 bucks a year or something like that. But I've come across a lot of people that don't have them, that don't have a CETO membership and when you call CETO and you're not a CETO member the price is astronomical I've seen numbers as high as $2,500 to get towed in because you're broke down so a lot of times the boater will decline CETO or towboat and the fact that they're sitting out there, depending on the circumstances, I, I had an in particular case where I can't remember which commercial salvage was offered up, but they declined. And it was a sailboat. They literally started getting pushed across a sandbar. Literally, the boat was at a 45-degree angle. We have weather conditions on our boats that says that, you know, if you're on this actual boat, you can't go out if the winds are 30 knots or more. We had to call our higher command to get permission to put our boat in the water to go out and get these guys because the weather conditions had deteriorated that much they were getting pushed across a sandbar it literally became a hazardous situation for these guys sounds like triple a for boats is a good idea that's my takeaway from that <laughs> well i'll say that triple a for boats i mean that's what i'm calling like, your tow your tow club membership or whatever that's that's you know kind yeah. of that same idea <clears throat> CETO, if you pay for the membership, it's a lot cheaper to pay for the membership than it is to call for a tow. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, another word you use here is disorientation, disoriented. That's something I can see definitely happening on the water. Can you talk a little bit about that and the problems that it can cause? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um there's so many different levels that I could go into with that. Um, one of the primary areas that I worked in, we had a lot of creeks and rivers and bays and inlets and all that type of thing. And a lot of it's marsh grass. And you can't necessarily tell like what's what. So, you know, always recommend having a radio on board, like an actual fixed radio. It's one thing that I always recommend. GPS, same thing. 
because a lot of these coastlines, you know, you can't necessarily make out what's what. If you get out 20 miles offshore, it's water. There's no landmarks. People get disoriented. It's totally a thing. I've responded to several different cases. I've responded to several different cases with injuries because somebody got disoriented. They thought they were one place. They weren't. They ran aground, and somebody got thrown into something on the boat. And now we've got medical casualties. So getting disoriented is another concern when you're out on the water. So knowing your local area and having a GPS on board is another thing that's just it's a good thing to have. Okay. Um, in the end, you know, you mentioned that the operator is who is really um, at, you know, who has the most responsibility for all this stuff. What are some of maybe the resources that are maybe the best for them to determine what those needs and responsibilities are? I pretty much have one go-to resource when it comes to that type of thing. And that's going to be the Coast Guard Auxiliary. Coast Guard Auxiliary has a website. They will come out and they will do a courtesy inspection on your boat. So you can call the Coast Guard Auxiliary. And if they come out and they find a problem with your boat, they're not going to write you a ticket. They're not going to write you a violation. They're not going to try to put you in handcuffs. They actually don't have any law enforcement authority. The Coast Guard Auxiliary is specifically in place for public safety. That is what they are there for. The government, it's one of the things the government did do that was smart. They specifically don't want any negative repercussions coming from a Coast Guard Auxiliary inspection, specifically so that people will go get a Coast Guard Auxiliary inspection. So... It is always my number one go-to resource for someone. They will come out. They'll look over your boat. They'll tell you if there's anything wrong, not just what you're required to have, but if you, you know, if they pop the engine compartment open and they see, like, a fuel line that's dry rotted and it might be an issue in the future, they'll tell you that. You know, they'll tell you, okay, you're missing a fire extinguisher. Oh, you should replace that fire extinguisher. Oh, your flares are about to expire. You should replace your flares. They will tell you all of that information. Okay. And that's is there a cost for that? Is that a... Negative. Um, the Coast Guard Auxiliary is all volunteer. Those dudes volunteer to do what they do which is another benefit to it because those guys want to do what they are doing. They, they are there because they want to help the public. Very cool. That's, that's, that's good. And you have actually a site where people can, can learn more about that, and we've got that in the show notes for people. Uh, and I think, that, I think that would be a great idea for most people to do because it doesn't cost anything, and it can avoid anything from – 
you know, actually being fined on the water to being in trouble on the water. And it, it seems like a, a very reasonable thing. And, it, it, you know, the, the fact that you wouldn't be cited for anything makes a lot of sense from, I, I think, multiple standpoints. You know, you're not maybe actually out boating when you're having this inspection done. But on the other side, it's, it's also kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. if you're a smart parent, when your kids get old enough that they're out and they could be drinking, if you're smart, you say, listen, if you're ever in a situation where you need a ride, call me. And yeah. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to give you absolute amnesty in that situation because it's more important to me that you're home safe than you know you try to hide it and you end up dead. And it's kind of that. It's not exactly the same, obviously, because it's government, but it's kind of that same school of thought. Like it, it doesn't make sense for someone to say, hey, can you help me find anything I'm doing wrong? And then say, well, we found this, and now you're going to get you know cited for it. So. Uh, that, that's, that's really cool. I didn't really know there was a difference between the Coast Guard and Coast Guard Auxiliary that was like defined that way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I honestly, I love the Coast Guard Auxiliary. A lot of the guys that I've known that were in the Auxiliary, awesome people. They love what they do. They volunteer for it because they enjoy it. And they really provide a service for the community. And another another benefit to getting a Coast Guard auxiliary inspection is when you interact with the regular Coast Guard. If I pull up on you and I'm getting ready to do a you know safety inspection, and I see oh you were inspected by the auxiliary six months ago, five months ago, something like that. Ah. You got four people on board. Show me four life jackets. Oh, you got four life jackets. All right, have a nice day. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that the fact that you took the time to go out and get the auxiliary to inspect your vessel tells me that you're proactive in making sure that you're operating safely. So I'm not necessarily going to. In every boarding officer is different, but. Me personally, if you took the time to go out and get an auxiliary inspection, I'm not gonna like. Yeah, you you took that time. You obviously you got you're looking out for yourself. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I guess that's you you'd know that though that I'd been inspected by the auxiliary. I mean, how they actually give you a sticker? Oh, okay. Oh. They, they give you a sticker with the date or with the, the year. So, you know, this year, 2017, you go get inspected by the auxiliary, they give you a sticker that says 2017. So you're saying that a voluntary program run by the state that's only used by people that want it actually can work. Hmm. Yep. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. How that works. <laughs> Interesting. Um, let, let's, let's kind of talk about one more thing before we wrap up here today, and that is – You are being inspected, boarded, etc. How should somebody handle that? Because you know, I think we've seen the consequences of people not understanding how to deal with law enforcement on the side of the road. And I think, I think some people actually kind of don't actually think of some of the things that happen on the water as a contact with law enforcement, which it is. So, how should a person handle it? Who is who is you know who are they? Why are they talking to you? What's the procedure process? I mean, I'm a concealed carry holder, you know, so I'm going to have a weapon on me. I know most people that are smart that are out on the 
ocean are going to have weapons on their boat. How does that all play into things? How do we create a safe interaction for everybody when dealing with that situation? Yeah, so obviously I'm not really going to speak to state. It depends on if it's a state-level organization, they could be just wanting, you know, if it's fishing game, they might just want to check to see what your catch is. Some state-level organizations need probable cause to be able to board you. Some state-level organizations can do the same thing the Coast Guard does. They can board you just for a routine safety inspection. But normally when the Coast Guard is going to interact with you as a recreational vessel, it's probably just going to be to do a routine safety inspection. If you do have a firearm, that's one of the pertinent things that should be when whatever Coast Guard personnel addresses you, that should be one of the first things they ask is, do you have a weapon on board? The worst thing that you can possibly do is move your hands when you respond to that question. If you have a weapon on board, keep your hands where they can see your hands and say, yes, I have a weapon that's located here. If it's on your hilt, fine. They will more than likely ask to, you know, take the weapon and put it somewhere just for the safety of themselves, so forth and so on. But other than that, I mean, when the Coast Guard usually is going to interact with the recreational boarding, it's going to be for just a routine safety inspection. If... It's not for that you're going to know because they're going to address it immediately. Um, There's a number of occasions where I've stopped boats because they have bow riders. Um, People sitting on the actual bow of the boat. If I see that, you're getting stopped because it's a safety hazard. I've seen people die from that. So if we see that, we're going to stop you and we're going to say, hey, Riding on the bow like that is not cool. Um, It's not legal. So y'all need to sit in an actual proper seat. Whatever you're sitting on should be designed to be a seat. Um, Other than that, mostly it's going to be, you know, routine, just checking your stuff. One of the worst things that you can do is, like, as soon as... Just say the Coast Guard pulls up is start pulling stuff out. Like, I I pulled up on boats, and, like, as soon as we get up next to them, they're, like, trying to hand me a life jacket and stuff. I'm like, dude, we're not even to that point yet. Like, this is the government. The paperwork is the longest process in this. The first thing I'm going to want to see is your registration so that we can start filling the paperwork out. Once we get through that... Then we'll get around to, like, okay, life jackets, fire extinguishers, so forth and so on, blah, blah, blah. By the time we're done looking at all your equipment, the other dude's still filling the paperwork out. So, you know, whenever somebody approaches you looking to do some type of an inspection or something, just stop and listen to what they have to say. They're going to tell you what they want. If they want to see your registration first, that's what they're going to tell you. 
And that's nine times out of ten, that's what they're going to say. Let me see your registration because I got to start this paperwork. You know, kind of on this, this, this line of thinking, I've spent a lot of time on boats, both salt and freshwater, big boats, little boats. I've been uh, engaged with almost never. Um, I had a game warden, fish warden, whatever you want to call them, on Joe Pool Lake, pulled up on me, realized it was fishing, and like he didn't really even give a damn. He was out because pool has a lot of problems with you know people getting drunk and partying. So like, oh, you're doing that, right, whatever. Um, and, but I've been on you know trips with captains for saltwater fishing, offshore, inshore, you name it. I haven't had a lot of interaction with safety inspections and things like that. So what that kind of brings me to is your general safety inspection just like we need to do a certain number of these every month and there's a boat so let's go do it or are there things that trigger it is it is it more likely uh, that you would be inspected if you're doing something or acting a certain way or um, is it completely random or you know or what percentage would you say are completely random versus hey these people look like they're acting a fool we better go check this out that question there's different levels to it obviously you know, there are numbers that you will do so many safety inspections, blah, 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 in a year. So there's that aspect to it. There's other aspects that if you've got a pontoon boat, i.e. party barge, and you've got 20 people on board, you're probably getting boarded. I'm just saying. Okay. You got 20 people on board a pontoon boat getting boarded or drinking beer, you're probably getting boarded. Yeah, just, just saying, because it, it just, it's all situationally dependent. I mean, if I see something, like I said, bow riders. If I see you and you've got bow riders, you're going to get stopped because you're not supposed to do that legally. There's a law in place that says that you can't do that. So that's something that absolutely 100% you're, I'm going to stop you and say, hey, and situationally dependent, I might say, okay, this dude came down immediately and he, you know, I told him you can't do that. And he said, okay, and they all came back and sat in a proper seat. I might say, okay, have a nice day. Or if, you know, something else happens, I might say, okay, we're doing a full boarding on this guy. Yeah. We're back it to just, our classic thing depends. with whether you like law enforcement or not. Don't be an asshole because, you know, <laughs> in, in many instances they have all day to play that game if you want to. Yeah, and <laughs> I've then again, I've had guys that – They've had bell riders, and I said, no, we're doing a full boarding. Yeah. I don't care how they react. Like, these dudes, we're doing a full boarding on them. So, yeah, call it in. Go on and tell headquarters that, you know, we're, we're doing a boarding. Hmm. So it's just, it, it really depends. There's so many different avenues that you could go down with that one. <laughs> okay. Well, cool, man. I appreciate you being with us today and, and, and bringing your experience to the audience. It's certainly a, a lot of things to think about, and uh, it, it's certainly a lot of examples of what can happen when people, you know, 
don't pay attention. I, I want to finish with a few like like personal responsibilities things here, um, if, if you don't mind covering those. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you. Mean, we've talked about bow riding, which is is one of those things. But I mean, wakes. Um, nothing pisses me off more than being like under a bridge fishing pylons in a no wake zone and some ass hat comes flying through there. It's a it's an extremely dangerous thing. There's a reason for these. It's not just a you know crap on your phone or whatever. No wake zones. It's not enforceable, really. Um, you can throw a no wake zone buoy out and that's like. Go ahead, we're just being strafed by the Air Force. <laughs> yeah. Minor details. Alright, go ahead. So, you can throw a no-wake zone buoy out, and that's wonderful. I can throw a sign out on the street that says, no talking. Who's going to enforce it? Well, the thing with no-wake zones, it, you are responsible for your own wake. So if you blow through a marina doing 60 knots and you do damage to every boat in there, you're responsible for the damage. Just saying. You blow through there at 10 knots and you piss the winter bird off because you went through there too fast. Whatever, dude. Did I do any damage to your boat? There's nothing you can do about that. Okay. But you didn't do any damage, you're responsible for your own weight. I was going to add on to that, though, because we are speaking here from you know, kind of your level. That is not the case um, in many instances at the state level. Um, the, the law enforcement here in Texas on our lakes will flat fine your ass hard for exceeding uh, maximum posted speed and no wakes on it. And I, I know we're not going to go deep into that, and it may be different in other states, but... Um, well, that, that completely illustrates the point, though, is the operator is responsible for what happens on the boat, and you have to check with your federal and state regulations. Most of the places I've been at, you blow through a no-wake zone, you didn't do any damage, nothing's going to get said, nothing's going to get done. Texas, I've never been stationed in Texas. You know, I don't know how it would apply, you know, maritime at, at sea or, or, you know, but I'm saying within the lakes system, uh, which, of course, is not, you know, Coast Guard, occasionally you'll see a Coast Guard vessel uh, in inland waters, but usually what we see are it's either policed by local law enforcement themselves uh, like the Grand Prairie Police Department does have a, a boat, and they do some enforcement on some of the Grand Prairie Lakes, or it's going to be your Fish and Game Department, and totally different set of rules, man. I mean, if it says you know no speed over seven miles an hour, yeah, I've never now I've never seen anybody with a radar gun, right? But you know, when, when somebody rips into a no wake zone, planed up, you you know that it, that violates there, and they will they will flat light your ass up for it. And I, for one, I'm grateful for it because, uh, to me, it is a danger situation. I mean, like I said, and I think the part of that is that where that posting is, the, the person that's there, tied up to a pylon, for instance, has a reasonable expectation that that's not going to become an issue because that's 
that's the rules, right? So, um, and I think that people just out of courtesy should should do that one. But that's interesting. I didn't know that it wasn't enforceable. At least from the, the it, it's more of a damages thing. Was was anything damaged by it? There, I, I get that too. There's very few cases where there is an actual no wake zone that is enforceable. Uh, most of it, as far as the federal stuff, is based upon you're responsible for your wake. So did you do damage to something else? Got you. Um, it, but that also, I mean, it really does hammer. There's got to be like harbor policies and stuff too, because a lot of those things are like privately owned and whatever. And they, yeah, you might not get a ticket, but you might not be able to, to dock there and get your ass thrown out. I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, th I think we've covered that good. And then um, talk about like, so I never even thought about this because I'm a freshwater guy mostly, but no dumping sewage. I yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Most of your, uh, most of your, like, you've got a John boat, a bass boat, you're not even going to have a toilet on board. It's not even a concern. Um, the, the, there is a lot of stuff to do with sewage, and it's mostly with some of your longer boats, you know, that have cabins on them, they have toilets on them, and you have to be three miles off to dump sewage. There's um, regulations in place. So that you have to have a holding tank, you can't have an overboard discharge, and in that instance, you have to have a three-way valve so that you can select between dumping overboard and going to your holding tank. And it's one thing that I run into a lot with vessels that do have a holding tank is that they don't have their selector valve locked in the holding tank position when they're inside of three miles. That can be as simple as just throwing a zip tie on the handle. So it's just one other additional thing to check. All right, and uh, let's, let's finish with alcohol. We kind of brought that up a bit, but I think there's like a there's some misconceptions about what is acceptable alcohol-wise on a boat. Um, I think there's also some local uh, laws that vary on, on exactly what that is and is not. But from your perspective, how does that fit in on a boat, you know, alcohol? Um, I mean, pretty much like most instances, you're driving, don't drink. Simple as that. Um, if, if you're not driving and you are three sheets to the wind, I do not care. As long as you are not touching the steering wheel, it's irrelevant. Um, like you said, I mean, state by state, state laws might have something different, but, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, they go out on the boat and they party they drink it's a thing as long as whoever is operating the vessel is sober it's pretty much irrelevant what everybody else is doing is there a standard for that for instance you know in texas if i get pulled over with a with a beer in my you know my lap open as a driver that's open container i'm in trouble but if i've been drinking and i don't have any alcohol on me uh, 0.08 blood alcohol level you know, and they might ask me to do a sobriety test or whatever. Like, so 
from a standpoint of each state, that's going to be different. But from a standpoint of like you know where Coast Guard enforcement is, is there a standard of intoxication? Yes, there is. And to be honest with you, I I haven't been doing the whole boating safety thing for a couple of months now. So I would actually have to look up and verify specific information. But I can tell you, if if I see you and you're operating a vessel with a beer in your hand, you're going to get stopped. You're going to go through the field sobriety test. You're going to probably get breathalyzed whole nine yards just because you, you you have your hand on a beer, you have your hand on the steering wheel, you're going to get stopped. And that's, once again, that goes back to this is me personally. I see that. Yes, you're going to get stopped. Okay. Uh, so I guess then my other thing would be, and I'm not trying to work the system here, just I think it's important to know what the law is. So a person is seen operating a vehicle with a beer in their hand, is tested, breathalyzed, whatever. They're not over the legal limit. They are sober, if you want to call it that. Um, is that a violation? Just a straight-up open container violation in the hand of the operator? Because obviously there's not an o Like some states, if you're a driver and there's a passenger in your vehicle with a beer... I don't know which states still allow this, but it's okay. It's not a violation because the driver's not drinking, if the driver's sober. And then most states, as far as I know, I'm driving down the road, open container in my vehicle. That's a, a violation independent of a DUI. A boat, that's obviously not the case. So guy's running the boat, has beer in his possession, clearly drank some beer, but he's legally sober. Is he cited for anything or not? And maybe that's not something you've had to deal with yet. I'm going to put that on the – I haven't had to deal with that yet. Okay. I will say from my understanding, and you're kind of getting into the sea lawyer kind of a thing here. I'm not a lawyer. Gotcha. But from my understanding, there is a distinction between driving while intoxicated – Driving under the influence. Okay. Driving while intoxicated means that you blew into a breathalyzer and you blew over the legal limit. Okay. Driving under the influence means that, and from once again, I am not a lawyer, but my understanding of it is I saw you with your hand on the steering wheel. And uh, hand on a beer, and I saw you take a swig out of that beer. I saw you drink beer. I saw you driving a vehicle. You are driving under the influence. That is my understanding of that. Okay. Once again, I am not a lawyer. I mean, in, in your capacity, basically being a mechanic assisting these things, you're not probably the person that's issuing the citation generally anyway. You're, you're no. there as part of the inspection crew and to help somebody fix their boat if they're stranded or what have you. Yes. Okay, that's fair enough. Because I, I, the reason I point that out, and the reason I think that's important, is because if we don't point that out, we're going to have somebody in the comments going, I can't believe he's the one. Right. No, 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 he's not the one you know, issuing these citations. He's part of this and seeing what's going on. So, okay, that, oh, yeah. that, that makes sense. 
You're going to have that either way. Probably. Yeah, well, that's you know, I'm not here to. You know, we're not here today to say the way things should be. We're here the way to say things are, so people know what they're dealing with. Which I think is when you're taking your life in the hand from a safety perspective, and when you're taking your liberty in the hand from a law, uh, you know, your a legal perspective. I think it's important to know those things. Anyway, man, I, I appreciate you being with us today, Jason, and uh, it's been a great interview, man. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. All right, that'll do it. I got to get to work because we're late in the day for me. Okay. All right, man. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Take care. You too. Bye. All right, great interview. I, I learned some things. I hope everybody out there did, and I hope if you are going to get on the water, you take to heart some of the things that Jason had to tell us because the water, whether it's a big lake or a river or the ocean itself or a bay, can be a very unforgiving mistress if we're not careful. Anyway, um, so I, I've added this segment to the show, a little quick segment here at the end called YouTube Channel of the Day. seems to be going really well. Please keep your suggestions coming in. Again, I'm still working off my personal list here, um, but I am going to probably begin next week. At least a couple of the episodes a week will be uh, from the suggestions coming in. Remember, there's a hard limit on a channel. It has to have at least a 1,000 subscribers for consideration, and I'm going to kind of go through them in the order they came in. So if you sent one like yesterday, it'll probably be a couple weeks because they're coming in pretty fast. TSPC YouTube in the subject line if you want to submit a channel for consideration for this segment. Today's channel is kind of interesting. It's called Great Depression Cooking. And it's nine, it's a 96-year-old gal that makes these different dishes that they had during the Great Depression, like what Sunday breakfast was. You know, that was a special, and it was basically like some coffee and some homemade cookies and some wafer cookies. But she also threw this, she has like the poor man's feast, which is basically like fried potatoes and hot dogs, right? And as she's preparing these meals, she tells stories about the Depression, what it was like growing up being a child, fighting with her little brother, things like that. And when I watch that channel, I listen to that lady, what I think is, you know, we're talking World War II generation and back at this point. The, the, the Great Depression generation that, you know, the children of that generation are the few that are left that have been through that and have any memory of it. Um, we're losing that whole pocket of history in these people and I am so glad this woman's family got her on video discussing these things before she passed away because recently she did in fact pass away pretty amazing person pretty amazing channel it's not a huge number of videos but the ones that are there full of wisdom and the truth about what it was like I posted her channel on Facebook today, and one of the things I said was, Hey, millennials, tell me how tough you have it again. And not really to pick on the millennial generation, because, you know, Gen X, we, we can learn something from that, too. So can the baby boomers. Uh, we're all people that never experienced that type of hardship in our lives. And many of us probably ate some of these foods growing up, because we had grandparents that went through there and kept the food alive. But don't fool yourself. Just because you've eaten a plate full of potatoes and hot dogs at some point in your life doesn't mean you under, understand what that was like. I think one of the things to really understand this lady's channel is to realize that the stuff she's cooking is not the everyday meals. They're the special ones. Hot dogs, potatoes, and onions, special night. We can learn from that. Not only do we need to study ancient history, we need to remember quite recent history right here at home. Next up, let me remind you, you can help support this show 
by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com. From there, you can get on over to Amazon, see their deals of the day, all kinds of cool stuff like that. Anytime you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, you do help the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. It's a pretty easy, painless way to do that. Uh, today's item of the day that I have a review for you on is a Encore item. I have featured it before, but it's, it's one of those items that I think, if you use cast iron cookware, and I think you should, it belongs in your kitchen. And I don't think you should have cast iron and not have it. It's called the Ringer. Basically, it's like a little piece of chainmail armor. It's probably about, oh, five inches by ten inches in size, somewhere around there. A little ring on it. And you use it to scrub out your cast iron cookware. And it's fantastic. Um, it was one of those things that I heard about. A lot of people mentioned it. And, you know, a few years ago, I finally went ahead and got one. And when I got it, I was like, yeah, I'm sure it works, but I'm... Also sure that it's, like, if you have well-seasoned cast iron, it's not that tough to clean anyway. And uh, no, this thing's awesome. Because not only does it do a great job of cleaning out a cast iron pan, it actually does a great job of, like, when you're using it to clean out a cast iron pan, of continuing to condition that cast iron. And here's what I do usually. I take my pan, and if it's got some icky gick in it, I get it nice and hot, and then I dump a couple cups of water in it to deglaze it, and I hit it with a metal spatula to break any of that loose, pick it up with a pot holder and dump it in the sink. I hit it with some more water and get it cool enough that I can scrub it without burning myself, and I take that ringer and I go to work on it, and if it's kind of a little bit more gicked up than normal, I'll take a big handful of uh, kosher salt, coarse, coarse kosher salt, use like an abrasive, and, and that helps condition the pan as well. It's good to do every once in a while whether you need to or not anyway to help condition the pan. Give it a good wipe out, hit, put it on the burner, heat it up to dry it, hit it with a little bit of oil and wipe it down, and you're good to go. And what I love about this thing is I have a lot of really old cast iron pans, but I have never been able to find a Dutch oven, like an old Griswold Dutch oven or something like that uh, from, you know, 1920s and back when the cast iron was milled before it was beaded. You know, now, everything you buy now has a big bead on it. It takes a lot longer to develop the kind of patina you're looking for, and it'll never be as good as those old ones. Well, I've, I've found a Dutch oven or two, but they're always like, well, if you give us your kidney, you can have, you know, like 300 bucks and stuff for a nice Dutch oven. So I have a, a class, you know, just a, a modern lodge Dutch oven, and this thing has really helped me get that into, like, I think the best condition you can expect out of modern cast iron. Check it out. It's called The Ringer. You'll find it at tspaz.com if you click on uh, the most current reviews. And remember, every time you do your online shopping at tspaz, you do help support Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. The song today is by a band called The Ataris. I've heard of them. I know they exist. I never really listened to them. And the song is called So Long Astoria. When I saw that in the uh, email from John Adam for this group of songs he sent me most recently, and before I even read it, I went, I know that place. I know that place, Astoria. It was a town from the 1985 movies, The Goonies. This intrigued me. So here's the deal with that. It, it, this, this is all off of song facts on, on this song. The story is a town from the 1985 movie Goonies. In the film, a bunch of kids find a treasure map and set out to find the booty. Hijinks ensue as the group of criminals join the search. The line, this is my wish, and I am taking it back, I am taking them all back, is from the movie. Okay? 
Um, lead singer Chris Rowe used childhood memories as inspiration. I'd take all these Polaroids of where I grew up. I went back and stole back these memories that were once mine by taking all these Polaroids. At this point in my life and career, I can't very well go to the door of the house where I used to live and say to the people that live there now, can I sit in my old bedroom that I can take photographs in the window? I tried to do anything I could to make this record more vivid and detailed, even going to stalker limits. So what this song is really about is trying to recapture our memories, our childhood. And there's a really great chorus in here. Life is only as good as the memories we make, and I'm taking back what belongs to me. And I, I think this is an interesting song because we really can't go relive those times. But those memories are part of us and who we are, the good and the bad. I think the interesting thing is by 2003, when the song came out, there were better ways to take pictures than with a Polaroid. But by taking those pictures with a Polaroid and then looking at them as Polaroids, boy, that'll send you back to the 80s. Now, this song fits really well with kind of a, a mood I was in this morning. I posted a bunch of like kind of nostalgic stuff on Facebook today. And one of the things I, I'm realizing more and more, and, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, the... Yeah, the depression cooking saying millennials tell me how hard you got it I'm realizing more and more and I already know this and I've already said this but we're being way too hard on I think ourselves as Gen Xers on the millennials and we probably will be too hard as the old curmudgeons as this, this next generation the children of the millennials grows up because there's so much that's been lost in America from that time and back Kids don't play in the woods anymore. They don't run around in groups and just take care of themselves all day long anymore and have to come up with things to do and come up with games to play. Boys don't act like boys anymore and pick on each other and end up okay with it. They get their feelings hurt as easily as a girl. And some of you just got upset that I said that. Yeah, we have some problems. But I think as long as we hold on to those memories from the past... We can help this next generation build their own memories and maybe at the same time recapture a little bit of the magic that we ourselves lost in the time frame that we grew up in and before. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.